With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Yeah, welcome back to Heard Tell. She's one of our favorites, but she's been busy and we haven't had her on. That's my fault. Now she's back, Brooke Medina. She's the VP of comms for John Locke in North Carolina. Real good friend. We go way back to when I first started doing this stuff. She was crazy enough to put me on one of their podcasts and look where that went. So those of you in my comments who always want to know who to blame, here they be. Brooke Medina, thanks for being back. How are you? I'm great. And I feel like with that sort of intro and setup, this actually means you owe me some royalties for being on her tell now and having this podcast launch and far exceeding anything we ever talked about or did on Civitalk, talk my old podcast with ray yeah i, I need to add, i hadn't talked to ray in a while i need to reach out to him yeah i'll give you i'll give you 20 percent of my dollar 45 from medium this month um we'll hook Take that it. up <laughs> uh you mentioned Civitas. they still call it the Civitas poll let's talk about that we, we're getting into an area here now where the Democrats have even come up with a motto for it. It's actually pretty good branding. They're talking about five to flip, five Senate races they think they've got a good look at. Polling looks like they got a good look at it. And to a lot of folks' surprise, North Carolina is one of them. Y'all did the polling. They're on to something here. What did your polling show in the North Carolina Senate race? Yeah, I mean, this is either Ted Budd or Sherry Beasley's race to lose at this juncture. Our polling found that they are in a dead heat. It's 42.3% on both sides. And so this is something that is, the gap is closing. So if you're on the Budd campaign or if you're Ted Budd himself, uh, you're feeling a little bit more nervous about this. So we pulled this back in June as well. And in June, there was certainly a sizable gap. I believe Bud was about 5% ahead of Beasley on that front. Uh, but that gap has certainly closed since June. Of course, nothing has happened in the news since June, right? So Senate is completely inconsequential. Um, I say that in tongue in cheek. This is really, uh, this is going to be a very, very tight race. And this is uh, going to be a intense battle going into the election season. Now, the interesting number that actually popped off to me here, besides that virtual tie and in the margin of error, of course, these are two people who have good rec name recognition inside the state of North Carolina. Sherry Beasley, of course, was a Supreme Court justice. For folks outside of North Carolina, uh, her leaving the Supreme Court, that was a messy big news story the Supreme Court flipped. So it, most people know who she is. Of course, Ted Budd was a sitting representative and he won his primary. We'll get to that in just a minute. But even with all that name recognition, even with this being a very hotly contested race, your polling shows there's still 12 percent undecided. That's a high, high number for getting into the end of August here. It is. But I think that it really speaks to the political disenchantment of many North Carolina voters. We have as our largest voting bloc unaffiliated voters. So these are voters like myself who oftentimes it's, we're kind of. We don't want to affiliate so directly with the political party, despite the fact of holding very, very clear and very principled views oftentimes on politics and and policy. But these are voters who are just like, you know what, I'm not super excited about either candidate right now or there's just a big question mark. And I'm waiting to see how the economy uh, pans out to see what else is going to unveil itself between now and November. And so I agree, though, this is a really high number of undecideds. 
Um, so it'll be interesting as we pull this again next month as well as October and see how things shape out. But this is going to be a very, very expensive race. Um, the Bud team, I would say, has definitely dragged their feet when it comes to advertising, especially on cable news. Uh, we see Sherry Beasley ads all the time. Um, she seems very competent, very centrist is how she's presenting herself, despite the fact that she has a history and record on the Supreme Court, as well as other courts, that I would say North Carolinians are wise to look into and examine and decide for themselves whether or not she's as centrist as she posits herself. Um, Chad Adams, who's longtime radio host, he partners with us on Big Talker. I thought he had one of the most prescient things on this race. And this was a couple of weeks ago before this started moving, even when the Ted Budd first won his primary. He said, and you can break this down for folks who don't understand this reverence. He said, watch out for Beasley because she's going to run the Kay Hagan playbook. And that's pretty much what it looks like it's happened for folks that don't understand that reverence. Of course, the late Kay Hagan, unfortunately, she caught encephalitis of all things and passed away a few years ago. She was the senator in North Carolina. She took out uh, Elizabeth Dole, surprising a lot of people, part of the Obama wave in 08. And she ran as a centrist, but then she voted pretty along the lines, Democrat, rather liberal. But she was able to maintain her seat by running as a moderate. Sherry Beasley, of course, is a Democrat. She's mainlined towards liberal Democrat on most of her policies, but that's what she's running ads on being a centrist. She's running ads on bipartisanship. She's running ads. She's skewing the cultural issues, going to kind of meat and potatoes, jobs, stuff you would expect from a Democratic candidate. Looks like it's working. Yeah. Oh, it certainly is. And this is something that when Hagan and Tillis, I believe, ran against each other, um, she wasn't showing up to debates. Tillis was. And this is almost like the inverse. Sherry Beasley or Sherry Beasley just agreed to do a debate uh, with the National Broadcasters Association. And Bud is silent. Uh, the John Locke Foundation hosted its own debate with Carolina Journal during the GOP primary and Bud didn't show up. He has refused to show up at many of these. So it's almost like the flip. Um, but Sherry, Sherry Beasley is getting the opportunity to continue to throw herself out there as someone who's very reasonable, um, not someone who is like the typical D.C. politician that we're disenchanted with right now. So it'll be interesting to see if voters buy into that or if the Bud team ramps up their opposition, starts digging up some dirt, um, becomes a little bit more aggressive. But for right now, the only campaign ad that I've seen on the Bud side, despite a lot of club for growth pack money, is one of a grocery store and a little girl in a grocery store. So we'll see what happens. Let's talk about Bud for a second because you mentioned it. Uh, Brooke Medina joining us from John Locke. She, during the primary, that was the knock. He didn't show up for the debates. He didn't do anything. I interviewed him for radio. I asked him directly. I was like, what, what are you making of this? And he goes, we've got our data. We know our numbers. We're going to all 55 counties. We're going to talk to everybody. We know what we're doing. We're going to win this thing. He was right. I was wrong. He won his primary very handily, quite frankly. And it worked for him. He rode the Trump endorsement. The Club for Growth ads were absolutely everywhere. And he won. 
So I was wrong. He was right. However, maybe I was just a little too quick for it because he's doing the same thing, it seems like, in the general election, and the general election is not the same beast. He has the Donald Trump endorsement, but Donald Trump is not on this ticket. He's not going to be on the ballot to help buoy him, even though it, it was a Democratic or a Trump state in 2020. I think he's making a mistake here. He's not engaging. He's laying low. I know the learned behavior is it worked for him in the primaries. I think he's making a mistake here. I think you're absolutely right, because even the Club for Growth ads, I haven't been seeing the ads like I did in the primaries all of a sudden lately. Maybe they're holding it. But I'm watching these poll numbers move around. You can only lose so much ground. You need to do something proactive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. It's like it did pan out for him, despite the fact that many of us were skeptical during the primaries that that would be a good strategy for him. Yep. And we were wrong. It clearly it, it ended up being the strategy that he needed for a Republican primary. Uh, it is interesting that Club for Growth was so aggressive and spent so much during the primary uh, but yet it seems like more crickets at this juncture. But again, this is the end of August. It's not September or October yet. So maybe they're saving their war chest for later. We'll see what happens. But right now, if I was an advisor on that campaign, I'm certainly wondering, OK, let's actually get you out in front. Um, let's get you ahead of these issues. This is for many analysts. A lot of people believe this is the Republicans midterm to lose. Um but I think too many people sometimes take things for granted on the political front, which nothing should ever, ever be taken for granted when it comes to the electorate. Yeah. And Senate races are very different cyclically than the House races, which we know the cycle for those. Uh, this is not unusual if you go through American history that the Senate and the House split off a little bit on the political cycles. There was other stuff in the Civitas poll I wanted to ask you about real quick, though. Obviously, the number one issue on everybody's mind is the economy. There's some interesting nuggets in here about the economy, wasn't there, especially when it comes. Now, we know oil and gas prices, you know, almost 87 percent. Trying to get 90 percent of anybody on any polling ever is really hard to do. You managed to do it here. That's pretty remarkable. But some of the other stuff on here was very interesting. Talk about some of the other issues polled here, because those are going to play very heavily into these election cycles, aren't they? Yeah, they certainly are. The economy is always going to be the number one driver when it comes to elections uh, here in the United States. Um, despite the fact that we've seen the Roe versus Wade or the Dobbs decision and Roe v. Wade overturned or remanded back to the states, that will certainly be a key issue for certain voters. But at the end of the day, most people want to be able to provide for their families. They don't want to see government continue to take, 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 and their grocery prices and their energy bills go up, up, up. Um, one thing before talking about the economy is the fact that Joe Biden's approval numbers went from terribly, awfully bad to just awfully bad. And so he's still underwater. It's still, I believe he's 17 points underwater, uh, but it wasn't as bad as it was before. So I think that's reflective of the fact that inflation was, uh, is not going or is not continuing to spiral this month. It hasn't gotten better, but it hasn't gotten worse either. Energy prices in terms of oil and gas, those are, um, they're starting to either recede a little bit or just staying neutral. And so those are things that voters are, they're, they're still imminently important to them, but it's not as painful as it was 
the past few months, especially in June. So um, one of the questions we asked was, do you believe that we are in a recession? So 66% uh, said they agree that we are in a recession despite the White House's protestations that we are not. Um, that's the perception among likely North Carolina voters. We're in a recession. 19% said they disagreed with that. They don't think we're in a recession, but 10% weren't sure. They just didn't know either way. So they were certainly persuadable. But then another question that I think is really telling and concerning is, how worried about are you about losing your job over the next 12 months? 25% said they're worried. 66% said they are not worried. So despite the fact that many are concerned about a recession, they think we're in a recession, they themselves think that their jobs are fairly secure. And I would say that's in part because of the tight labor market. Yeah, Brooke Medina joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. There's a couple more items on this polling data, stuff that's not getting talked about right now, but things that are showing up on ballots like Medicaid expansion, like abortion. We're going to talk about that. Also, she's got a story uh, about eminent domain that's absolutely going to grind your teeth if you care anything at all about liberty and due process. We're going to talk about that with her more with the great Brooke Medina on her tell right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, we're back on Hertel, having a great conversation with our friend Brooke Medina, returning to Hertel after too long of an absence. Um, I want to talk about this and the last two items in this Civitas poll. Here's something that I found really interesting. It's not getting a lot of play right now, but once the, we get through the election year and we, we start doing some legislating again, this is going to come back up. Medicaid expansion has been a big ticket item. It's been going state to state. It passes almost every time it comes up in a state, whether it's a red state or blue state, interestingly or not. It's one of those phenomenons. But your polling has an interesting data point here. 50% disapproved of executive orders to expand Medicaid dollars to be used to pay out of state, especially when it comes to things like abortion, especially when it comes to things like health care. I think the, the thing here is very clear that voters are okay with doing this themselves when it comes up on a ballot. They don't like executive orders on stuff like this. And especially when it comes to something like an abortion thing, something like that. I thought that was a really interesting data point that kind of runs counter to the electoral stuff. But when you look at it, people want to say in that they just don't want to be in pen and ink. Yeah, I think that this what this shows in in the polling is that the North Carolina electorate is actually somewhat pro choice to some degree. Only 7% of those that we polled actually said that they believe abortion should be illegal in every circumstance. Otherwise, it was to degree. Um, only 20, 22% thought that abortion should be le legal under every circumstance. So that shows first off how the North Carolina electorate is divided on this issue. And it's certainly just not strictly pro-life versus pro-choice. It's on a spectrum. 
And that shows up in the Medicaid expansion question or the Medicaid question as far as should North Carolinians be paying for abortions? And that's an entirely different story. So someone might say they are very pro-choice um, or at least to a degree, but they still don't believe that the taxpayer should be the one footing that bill of such a highly contentious, highly political issue. I'd be curious also to see with our next poll, if we ask them a similar question about student loan forgiveness or debt cancellation and see how they feel about that. Um, I, there are a lot of programs or theories or ideas that voters will support in theory, but it's an entirely different story sometimes when it boils down to whether or not they will be paying for that particular issue. So, Yeah. And you're based out of the Raleigh-Durham area. That's a big college area of course. You got the big three up there, Duke, North Carolina and NC State. What's the talk around there? Because this 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 is an area that has a one of the highest educational rates in all the country. It's well known for its university system. You know, you do comms, so you're paying attention to the news feed. You're watching the timelines. You're talking to people. What's been the reaction to that? Because you're in an area where that's a probably more of an issue than maybe in some other places. Of course, also a big tech area now, so a lot of higher end educated folks, a higher educated workforce. What's what's folks saying? What's your read on that now that we've got a couple of days in on it? On the student debt cancellation, um, it's interesting. I would say that there are so many beneficiaries of that debt cancellation. I believe about 75 million Americans out of 330. So this is definitely impacting a sizable portion of the population, impacting in a good way. It's benefiting them. Um, so overall, I would say it's very, very split. There are those people who would say, I'm benefiting from this personally, but in terms of fiscal conservatism and my principles on that, I disagree with this. Granted, Raleigh-Durham area is not brimming with fiscal conservatives whatsoever. It's definitely academics that lean left. So many of them are celebrating this. They think that this is, or they will say publicly that this is a justice issue, or this is the way in which we are definitely hurt, helping the um, lower income Americans that have taken out college debt, uh, but it's so much more nuanced than that. And so I will be curious to see if we pull it next month, what the crosstabs say and how this breaks up, breaks down into Democrats versus Republicans versus unaffiliated, where they stand on this particular issue. Um, but one of the things I would advise people is it's one thing to support this in theory because you believe that uh, it is it is a way to help the American public become more educated without saddling them with debt at the outset of their careers. But it's another thing to actually have to figure out the way to pay for this. It's going to be exceedingly expensive. And there will be blue collar American workers who chose not to go to college. One of them I've cited on Twitter before was my is my father-in-law. He was an immigrant blue collar worker, works hotel security down in Florida. Um, He's going to be one of the type of people that pays for this for a young attorney couple who's making $249,000 a year. So it just, there's some, um, there are some messaging issues that the White House is trying to get out in front of on this and create a narrative that this is just about really helping those desperate needy college students. And in some cases that will be, um, but in other cases, it's certainly not. And it's going to have an impact um, far more than just the wealthiest or the corporations. It's going to directly impact the taxes of those that are definitely maybe more of the bottom 30%. 
Yeah, if you poll it, we'll definitely want to talk about it because I'm kind of letting this breathe for a minute because I know what I think about it. But I think this is going to have to shake out a little bit because I'm seeing I think there's a there's a lot of people that even support it that just don't like how this is being done. I know some of our progressive friends are really upset that it's only ten thousand dollars and twenty thousand for the pale grants. We'll see how this one shakes out. One more last thing in the Civitas poll I wanted to ask you about. This is where polling data gets useful because it shows you just how splintered people are on an issue. We already talked about, you know, everybody said gas is an issue, you know, 87 percent. That's that's unheard of in polling to get anybody to agree to 87 percent on anything. But when you go to break it down, what to do about it? Thirty seven percent said the state should prioritize environment at the risk of high energy prices. Forty five percent said they should prioritize affordability and reliability in energy over carbon emissions. And then you got 17 percent that aren't sure, but because they probably just don't want to answer a sticky question. That's a hard bridge to gap. That's where this debate's going to be. It's where it's been for a long time. This is where it's going to be for a while because people like the idea of clean energy. They like the idea of being environmentally conscious. Even conservatives, you, you need to call it conservation instead of environmentalism, but they, you know, they want to take care of the earth too. But this is where the rubber meets the road, and there's a gap here that isn't going to get bridged anytime real soon, and the polling shows that, doesn't it? It does. Well, let's liken this to the abortion Medicaid question. It's one thing to agree with something or like it in theory. It's another to actually have to foot the bill for it. And same with the energy prices. Many people want to go green and I would say go nuclear then. Um, But they also realize, okay, my family is coming up on a winter. The elderly are coming up on possibly a difficult winter. We've seen rolling blackouts in California. We've seen what happened with Texas and their huge winter storm and the importance of energy reliability. We know what it costs to drive back and forth to work to the grocery store, to our kids' soccer games. So they are importing their real life experiences. Importing is not the right word there, but they're they're looking at their real life experiences. And it sounds nice to be very clean energy green, especially uh, the ways in which the, I would say, progressive left or environmentalists have said is the right way to be clean energy and uh, energy independent. Um, but in reality, many, many people are just hurting on this front and they're actually probably going to see energy costs rise by another 30 to 50%, depending on what the legislature and what Duke energy, for example, require, um, in their clean energy portfolio to satisfy what governor Roy Cooper has mandated, which is essentially a Paris climate agreement. He wants zero carbon emissions by, um, 2030. And so they're starting to develop a 50-year energy plan. And this is going to heavily rely on, unless people change course, unless the Utilities Commission changes course, this is going to heavily rely on wind and solar energy, which we know is not affordable and it's not reliable. And so this is a really big, uh, there's an, uh, a big iceberg under the surface with this particular issue that North Carolinians or anyone else that's just interested in this topic is wise to keep an eye on over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's not going away and it's going to get louder. And like you said, winter's coming. And if you've never been in Raleigh in wintertime, uh, there's two cities I've lived in, uh, Vegas when it rains and Raleigh when it snows, people lose their ever loving minds. It's absolute insanity. We're going to take one quick break. 
When we come back with Brooke Medina, we're going to talk about her piece on this eminent domain story. This is something that's personal to me. I love discussing this because it's something that's not discussed enough, how the government can do this when they should, when they should. And Brooke Medina continues with us right after this. Actually, wait two seconds because the garbage truck just pulled into the call the sack. All right, we're good. Dogs do not like the garbage truck. They find it offensive. <laughs> Welcome back to Herd Tell. That's Brooke Medina. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for sticking with us. Okay, you wrote about this eminent domain story out in Chatham County. I'm going to get my biases on the table. The house I grew up in was built because of eminent domain because they lived down in the uh, Golly River Valley. They came in, they dammed it up, they built Summersville Lake. We had to move back up on top of the mountain, up yonder. Um, and they've been there ever since. They built that house because of eminent domain. That's where my mom grew up. That's where I grew up. Eminent domain is a real thing. Now, it's a tool the government has to have. We understand that. But how they wield it, where they wield it, and who they wield it against it tells us whether it's a good usage or a bad usage or an amoral usage or quite frankly, there's been some corrupt usages. We know uh, the history in the U.S. It's been used against minority groups. It's been used against the poor. This thing can get ugly in a hurry, and we're talking about taking people's homes, businesses, and livelihoods. I've read through your piece. I've read the auxiliary stuff on this Chat Chatham County situation. You tell the story, but as far as I can tell, unless there's something I'm missing, this looks egregious, this looks outrageous, and this looks like an abuse of governmental power to me. What's your take on it? My take is amen. I think it's all of those things uh, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, like you said, I'm not so, I'm not someone who doesn't think there is absolutely no place for eminent domain. Similar to there's, you know, I'm not someone who believes that there's no place for zoning. Uh, there are places, but the government has run roughshod over private property rights in favor of other politically favored private businesses to be able to set up shop. And that's an injustice that I think definitely and right, rightfully riles up many Americans. If we don't have private property rights, what do we really have? And I think too often there are so many conversations surrounding other types of rights that, you know, right to healthcare, right to education, stuff like that, where we forget some, one of the most fundamental rights is life and property. And I work at the John Locke Foundation and John Locke, the philosopher, was a huge proponent of property rights, beginning with the right to oneself as well as their actual property. And this is one of those cases here in North Carolina where I would say families like a woman named Lisa Stone, who's a Chatham County resident, as well as Jack Sanderson, another Chatham County resident. And they're, they're, critically essential fundamental right to private property have been essentially cast aside by the government in order for a new startup company from Vietnam called VinFast to set up shop to create electric vehicles. So this actually uh, flows nicely from our previous energy conversation and discussions around being environmentally friendly. Um, so the government, particularly Governor Roy Cooper, has really celebrated bringing VinFast into North Carolina, so much so that we've given them a 32-year 
extension essentially to allow them to reside here in North Carolina and milk off the taxpayers for 32 years. We were giving them $1.25 billion. That's a division between state money as well as local money. Uh, that is money or tax incentives that are footed by the taxpayer. But to add insult to injury are these Chatham County residents, 27 homes, five businesses, at least one church that are now going to be either torn down or uh, their properties receded a bit. Uh, to allow for some infrastructure, some roads to make their way into the VinFast manufacturing facility, which has not yet been built. Um, but these are people who have lived here in North Carolina, who have lived in their homes for from between 50 and 70 years in some cases, and they refused to sell their property. So the government exercised eminent domain law and has subsequently taken their property to make way for the startup company. Yeah, see, the, the startup company is the part of this that bothers me because this is an unproven company. This is, I mean, it'd be one thing if it was like Ford or even even as much as I can't stand them, Tesla or something, you know, something that's established. I guess it'd be one thing. This is an unproven startup company that we're giving a lot. Look, we're we're putting a we're putting a beltway around Fayetteville right now, so that it's going near the property I own. They spent years on that. They had meetings. They put out maps. They showed everybody like, look, we've put it, we've gone around as much housing as we can, but this this road has to go in certain places because it's got to link up to I-95. Like the road has to go here. So we're going to have to take certain houses, but we've avoid, I mean, they're curving it to get around a lot of the major neighborhoods. They did everything they could. They did their due diligence and now they're moving stuff and they had to tear some homes down and whatever. That's the process that this is supposed to be. I don't see that process here. And I don't see it for something that's going to have all kinds of economical advantages, like a four and four in some places, six lane highway that was badly needed to get around Fort Bragg, which is one of the biggest military installations, by the way, also for national security reasons, because they had to get the traffic away from Fort Bragg. That's a good use of eminent domain. I still don't like taking homes, but understandable. I see none of that process here. I see bright, shiny object that we can put on a bullet point and we can put on fundraising and we can put on a political resume. That's what this looks like to me. And the fact that this is an unproven private company makes it even worse in my eyes. Yeah, I, you're right. This There hasn't been due diligence conducted on this. I mean, I think it started in March or May is when it was it was approved in March, uh, the taxpayer handout to VinFast. And then they started, uh, they started a few meetings over the summertime and now people, boom, people's properties are having to, uh, are subjected or they are the casualties of of this decision by the government. And again, like you said, this is an unproven company. Maybe VinFast does phenomenally well. We don't know yet. It is only just now starting to set up shop in California. They're making pre-orders for these electric vehicles, but we don't even know what the market demand is. We, we actually pulled this not too long ago, asking North Carolinians, do you own an electric vehicle? Only around two and a half percent even own an electric vehicle right now. And then we asked, well, do you plan on buying one? And this was during the height of gas prices. Only 12% said they even plan on buying one in the near future. So we don't really know what the market demand will be by the time the VinFast facility is uh, is created. Uh, but another component to this, I would say, this is an aside, but it's noteworthy, is that North Carolina electric vehicle makers can't even directly sell their vehicles here in North Carolina. So it's like, we're creating this. Um, we're creating this infrastructure on taxpayer dollars, taking people's homes and properties and businesses away from them, and a company that's only been around since 2017 in Vietnam and just now hitting U.S. 
shores. And we're doing all of these monumental, potentially cataclysmic decisions without really having conducting a really good cost benefit analysis. It's scary. It's concerning. Um, but then when you think about the actual North Carolinians, it's impacting directly. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Sorry, my mouth stopped working for no explicable reason whatsoever. Yeah, it's heartbreaking because anytime you and you can read, um, we'll link to it. You link in your piece, the News and Observer. The quotes from these people are just heartbreaking. You can imagine they talk about, you know, they they didn't get a lot of notice on this. I hope it works because I hope it's worth it what they're doing to these people. But I'm skeptical. So we'll see how it plays out and we'll keep an eye on it. But when we talk about a big just to put a bow on this, we talk about a big concept like government accountability. This is why you got to have government accountability because they can come in and take your house and then you got to fight them to not do it. And you're probably going to lose that fight. And uh, it's, it's frustrating stuff. Thank you for writing this piece. We're going to link to it. Like we always say, make sure you read the whole piece, make sure you read all the linked materials. Um, There's a uh, cameo from our friend Scott Lentz come in there too. You might want to check that out. Brooke Medina, I love talking to you. It's great to have you back. We'll have you on more frequently. We'll try to get you in the rotation more often, but you're so busy because you're popular and such. Uh, Let folks know about all those busy things you do, where they can follow you, what you got going on with John Locke and elsewhere. You're also a great writer in your own right. Let folks know how they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Andrew. And I it's a delight every single time. So yes, have me on more often. But uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just Brooke underscore Medina underscore. Uh, but definitely, I encourage you to follow the work of our reporters and our researchers at the John Locke Foundation so you can find out more of what they're doing and the research they're doing to keep government accountable. And that's at johnlock.org as well as carolinajournal.com. We also have a special movie premiere. So if you're in the Raleigh area, we're actually going to be doing a movie screening called The Hong Konger. So if you believe in democracy, you believe that China is infringing upon the rights of those free citizens of Hong Kong, you'll be interested in this movie. It's at the Alamo Draft House on August 30th. And so if you go to johnlock.org and go to our event section, you can get tickets or shoot me a message. I'll give you a promo code so you can get a discount. But thank you guys so much for joining and listening. Yeah, do all those sorts of things. We're doing that, too, because we've got the Dissident Project with Young Voices. It's got um, Sarah Yeo and some other folks that are actually Hong Kongers talking about what's happened to that country. I got I actually have family members that have married into the family from Hong Kong. So it's something I keep a close eye on. Terrible for the you want to talk about eminent domain. That's eminent domain on steroids. What China's done to Hong yeah. Kong. Brooke Medina, you are fantastic. Thank you so much, my friend. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Ah, welcome back to her tell. Okay, been wanting to talk to her 
for a little while, finally got it done. She's busy. We had to get her on the schedule. Uh, Quinn Townsend is another of our great Young Voices contributors. She has a master's in resource management economics from West Virginia University. Might have heard I'm a little fond of them, subtly. Uh, she's also a policy manager at the Alaska Policy Forum. She writes about taxes, education, health care, state budgets. Might ask her about all of them. We'll just have to see how it goes. Quinn, how are you, ma'am? Thanks for the time today. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, enjoy having you. Thank you so much for the time. You did some writing uh, in Real Clear Energy, and we've been talking about this on and off, but you wanted to talk about the tax credits with EVs, electric vehicles. Let's start with some nomenclature because this gets confusing really quick for folks because it's become a buzzword. Like just say, like just the abbreviation, you put EV on your Twitter account, people will uh, pounce and gather and start debating it, whether regardless of what you put after EV, they'll just jump all over. Um, I've got a couple on my Twitter feed. Anytime I mention Tesla, all of a sudden they show up. You never hear them any other time, right? People key in on this stuff. What is an electric vehicle tax credit? Because we keep talking about it just define it for us. Make sure we're all on the same song sheet here. Sure. So an electric vehicle tax credit is a credit that you can, if you as an individual or, you know, part of your family, you as a family um, purchase an electric vehicle, when you do your taxes for that year, um, you put that as like a it's similar to a tax write-off. So it's part of your taxes and then you will get that credit when you get your tax return, typically. Um, it's easiest to just think of it as an amount that you get off of the final price of your car. Yeah, and this becomes an issue because anytime you have a credit or a subsidy or whatever terminology you wanna use, that's going to influence behavior of the consumer. It's designed to be that way What's the practical application of that when we start talking about things like uh, electric vehicles, though? Is it actually working to influence behavior or is it just moving money around? Um, the short answer is it's just moving money around. So the intent of these EV tax credits um, is to influence, is to help, I'm putting that in quotes, air quotes, um, is to help Americans um, buy electric vehicles that they would not otherwise be able to afford. Um, but this tax credit is supposed to help them afford, you know, an electric vehicle. Um, so that's the intention of a, of a tax credit policy. However, it also influences um, manufacturers. So I just saw in the news this a few days ago that Ford and GM both just happenstance you know circumstantially increased the cost of their um ev so their electric vehicles um by between six thousand and eight thousand dollars which is right around the amount of the tax credit that just that was just passed um so that's coincidental the reason that becomes like that is we see it in other areas as well, not just manufacturing of cars and stuff. We see it in education. We see it in grant writing in, in the academic field. We see it in science with academics. We just went through this with the COVID stuff. Anytime there's a source of government money, people are going to flock to try to get in line for that government money. The problem is when you have, you know, not emergent because we've had electric vehicles for over 100 years, but the current itineration of electric vehicles, this is an evolving technology. 
So mm-hmm. when you start incentivizing it a certain way, that's going to affect how these manufacturers address it, isn't it? Yes, and that's um, that was my main part of my criticism in the article that I wrote about these tax credits is that um, there's lots of, the government has put on stipulations uh, for these tax credits. So the electric vehicle that you were that you want to buy has to be um, under a certain price um, and manufacturers, the companies that are selling these vehicles have to um, hit all of these targets for where they're getting the minerals to build the battery and um, then where they manufacture the car itself. And especially for newer companies, which there are a lot in this EV space, um, that's really hard to do because so much of the supply chain is um, not in North America, which is what the requirement are for. And that gets into something that you touched on the piece, Quinn Townsend joining us. The problem with the EVs and the thing that's limiting the technology and then the thing that gets into the manufacturing that you're going to talk about here in the piece is the battery technology. And EV mm-hmm. cars only as good as the battery because that's what makes this thing go. And the problem with the batteries, besides the battery life and the range and all that, that's getting it's getting better. I mean, it's getting closer to what a normal gas car would have, that 300 kind of mile range that most cars would have with a tank of gas. They're getting there but they need all these rare earth minerals to do that. And the problem with that is we don't have hardly any control whatsoever over those rare earth minerals, do we? Right. So China specifically owns the lion's share of companies that extract and then um, like put together and process the critical minerals that are needed for these batteries. Um, And so these tax credits, one of the stipulations is that manufacturers must um, get their rare earth minerals from, from either the United States here in the United States or a um, country with which we have a free trade agreement. But it's really, it's easiest to just think about it as a made in America requirement. Uh, and that's really difficult to do because it's extremely difficult to get a mine approved in the US, um, particularly under the Biden administration the last few years. I didn't know this one. I love reading stuff that I learned something in. But at the same time the Biden administration was doing this with one hand, on the other hand, one of the few rare places where we might be able to get these rare earth minerals mined, they were kind of shutting them down regulatory-wise. Talk about that for a minute because it seems almost backwards policy, but it sounds so much like the government that at the same time they're doing that, they were also using regulatory reform to kill the Ambler Mining District up in Alaska. Mm -hmm. So really, this is a problem of a government created problem. And so the government's solution is to use more government to fix the problem that they created in the first place, which means it's the solution isn't working. Um, So back in April, President Biden used the DPA, the Defense Protection Act, to to encourage the extraction and processing of critical minerals specifically in the US. 
But at the same time, um, the Biden administration has also been um, throwing up lots of red tape to stop the creation and the continued use of mines in the in the U.S., including the Ambler Access Mine in Alaska. Yeah, Quinn Townsend joining us now. We we've also been critical of the DPA usage here on our program for a couple different things. You could kind of make the argument, though. I, I mean, I can see it on paper, like China's an adversary. You know, they're not friends. They've also got, you know, the horrendous human rights stuff. They're imperialistic. They're expanding. We need to get a hold of this. OK, fine. But as you detailed in the pay, piece, we have the ability to do some of this. Um, there's a polymet copper and nickel mine in Minnesota, lithium in Nevada, copper in Arizona, copper and gold in Alaska, of course, which, you know, <laughs> gold in Alaska. Tell me if you've ever heard that one before. We do. But the thing is, with the current regulatory environment and with the environmental and not that mining doesn't need strict environmental guidelines, it does. We're, we're both West Virginians. We know better than anybody what happens when you don't regulate those things. In the current environment, people aren't even going to start looking for those kind of minerals or even start that process unless they have a consistent and coherent policy. So when you're piecemealing it and doing this, go on one hand, stop on the other hand that's really going to kill innovation and in trying to find this domestically, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Quinn Townsend joining us. Um, one other thing that I noticed in your piece and I wanted to ask you about, uh, when we came back to this made in America concept, we've seen this in other areas. It doesn't usually work out very well. Uh, made in America didn't work out good for steel. Made in America hasn't worked out really good for car manufacturers. When we look at this big picture, how would we healthily look at something like EV production domestically? Because, you know, the technology is going that way. I don't think it's there yet. I think it's going to get there. We mm -hmm. obviously want to make it here in America. We know what happened, you know, in the 80s and 90s with car production going overseas or outside of our borders. What would that look like policy-wise to try to healthily do it, not just sticking their thumb on the scales for the government to promote something like that? Yeah, I think broadly speaking, the solution is for policymakers to just to step out of the way. And um, there's so many innovators and entrepreneurs in the United States that know way more about electrical vehicles than me or any politician. Um, and generally speaking, most people understand that things like mining need to be happen ethically and um, in an environmentally safe way. So there do obviously need to be environmental guardrails around something like a private approving a new mine. Um, but the regulatory process takes years. I mentioned in my article, um, one mine specifically uh, in the Midwest, I believe, it has been under approval or has been under the process of being approved for over 10 years, which is an incredibly, a whole decade is a really long time for a business to be twiddling their thumbs waiting for a project to be approved. Um, so it really comes down to streamlining the streamlining the permitting process um, is one thing that would that would really help in terms of mining for EVs. And these rare earth minerals are also critical for things like our cell phones and solar panels and all of these other technologies that that we are using and we're not we're not going to be letting go of our cell phones anytime soon. So these critical minerals are are critical. That's a good thing for them. Yeah. And the thing about them being critical is there's probably stuff that we can make out of this stuff that we don't even know about yet if mm -hmm. we could get a hold of the manufacturing process. 
uh, Quinn Townsend joining us. Great information on this. The piece is up at Real Clear Energy. We're going to link to it like we always tell you. Read the whole piece in its entirety. She's got some other stuff linked within that as well. Read it for yourself and decide. Uh, Quinn, great information on this. Really appreciate it. Where can folks find you and follow you and what do you have going on until we talk to you again on Hertel? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Quinn underscore Townsend, number one, the numeral one. Um, I'm not super active on Twitter, but that's where you can find me. Yep. And she's up at her Young Voices page. We'll link to that as well. And the policy work she's doing, uh, doing some local writing in West Virginia. We'll talk about that with her some other time. Quinn, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yes, ma'am. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.